Welcome back to another episode of Best Case Ever mini podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan. Today, our special guest is Dr. Eric Russell. He's an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Baylor College of Medicine and a peds emergency medicine attending at Texas Children's Hospital, where he also did his PEM fellowship. That's a peds emergency medicine fellowship. His academic interests include global health and immigrant and refugee child health. And he's also involved in an interesting project called the Human Diagnosis Project. We'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of the episode. But Dr. Eric Russell, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rajiv. It's great being here. I really enjoy listening to your show and best case ever. So it is my pleasure to be here. Oh, man, we're happy to have you. Now, I should point out to our listeners that there might be some noise in the background because Eric doesn't live in Canada and hasn't been blessed with 10 centimeters of snow like I was today. Instead, he gets to have renovations done somewhere near or outside his house. Is that right? That is true. That is true. It is warm enough here that we are able to dig in the soil. Okay. One of the major advantages of living in Texas. Well, Eric, I'm excited to have you here. Why don't you tell us about your best case ever? So it started, um, I had an eight-month-old, previously healthy female who presented to our pediatric emergency department uh, in significant respiratory distress. On arrival, she was brought back immediately to our resuscitation room for our attention. Naturally, we were called to the bedside. Uh, When we walked in the room, found a child who was quite ill, was listless, and in significant distress. Her vital signs were notable for uh, heart rate uh, around 190, give or take. Her blood pressure was normal for age. Her respiratory rate, she was breathing in the 70s or so. Um, And her oxygen saturations were low also in the 70s. She was also noted to be febrile to 101.8 or 38.7 in Celsius. So I'm not a PEM fellow, but I get the suspicion that having a respiratory rate that is higher than your O2 sat is probably a bad thing. Generally speaking, uh, it's not preferable. Yeah, <laughs> that is a very fair and astute observation. Okay, so what else was um, going on? So, so our initial thought, I think, immediately walking in the room, we're in the middle of winter viral season at the time that we saw this case. We're at a pediatric emergency room at a children's hospital, so we see a lot of bronchiolitis. I think it's probably fair to say that our initial thought walking in the room that this was yet another patient with bronchiolitis in the middle of the winter. The family did uh, report to us some recent nasal congestion, some subjective fevers at home, and then generally worsening poor PO. Now she was coming in with increased work of breathing. So, so far, everything seemed to fit with bronchiolitis. Yeah, pretty typical bronchiolitis story, right? Pretty typical bronchiolitis, and she looked like it from the doorway when we walked in the room. So it was really my, during the initial primary exam that things started to take a little bit of a turn and made me pause a little bit. So most patients with bronchiolitis who are in this degree of distress really have some very coarse breath sounds. All of the mucus and swelling that they have in their airways are really very apparent and pretty hard to miss. But when I laid my stethoscope on her during my initial exam, I was really quite surprised. And she seemed to be aerating fairly well. And I really only appreciated moderate rails at best. There really weren't those significant breath sounds that we hear with most patients with bronchiolitis. Uh, yeah, that is a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, it was, a, it was a big mismatch. You know, I think that for me, this was very early in the case. But for me, this is, I think, what made me, made me pause that what I was hearing just didn't seem to match with what I was seeing in front of me. So it really made me pause. I, I think it's kind of interesting, you know, in the emergency room, we often rely on pattern recognition. As we become more experienced, that pattern recognition helps us 
and our efficiency with diagnosing the patients, ordering the appropriate tests, and the appropriate treatments. This is certainly true for bronchiolitis. When we see this all the time every day in most emergency rooms uh, across the country, we see patients with similar stories, similar periods, and similar sounds. And so it really was the my initial exam, the breath sounds of this patient, that made me pause and said, you know what, this really just doesn't fit that box but that I had placed her into when I had initially walked in the room. So moving on with the exam, I didn't hear any abnormal heart sounds in her, but admittedly, this can be challenging in a small child who's so tachycardic as she was, not to mention that the room was undoubtedly noisy at the time. So moving on, I noted that her perfusion was quite poor with a cap refill of probably in the order of four to five seconds. Um, I also Mm. felt like her liver was down approximately two centimeters. Now, typically in a patient with bronchiolitis who presents with this degree of respiratory distress and impending respiratory failure or ongoing respiratory failure, we generally will place IVs fairly aggressively, fluid resuscitate, and then initiate non-invasive or invasive positive pressure ventilation as needed. However, this patient, as previously mentioned, just wasn't really fitting into this box. And so I felt like we needed a little bit more information before moving forward down that path. So in that moment, uh, it seemed to me that a little bit of extra time to get a little bit more additional data was probably worth a slight delay in moving forward with our typical care. Yeah, totally. That sounds like the right move. Fortunately, within a fairly brief period of time, we had x-ray readily available and they were able to obtain a quick AP view of the chest. At that point, we noted that the patient had fairly significant cardiomegaly and probably some associated pulmonary venous congestion. Ah, so there it is. You know, all the pieces are starting to come together a little bit. Yeah, so it seemed to be becoming abundantly clear to us that we were not dealing with a sick patient with bronchiolitis, but rather a patient who probably had either previously undiagnosed heart disease that was decompensating in the setting of potentially a viral illness, or potentially a patient with newly acquired condition. Yeah, I would totally buy that explanation. Also, given her recent prodromal symptoms, the family's description of uh, recent viral URI symptoms, it seemed very possible that we were dealing with a case of acute fulminant myocarditis. Oh, yeah, that's a really great thought because that should be probably quite high up the differential. You know, she's old enough that most of the congenital stuff might have manifested by now. Were there other specific conditions on your differential at that point? Other potential cardiac causes that include coronary anomalies or coronary abnormalities, such as L-kappa, that may result in progressive myocardial ischemia, progressive worsening LV dysfunction, and then patients present or can present in significant distress like this patient. Other potential causes include primary cardiomyopathies or conditions with significant left or right shunting, such as a large VSD that perhaps was previously not noted. And then these patients may not be able to compensate in the setting of this acute respiratory illness. So moving on with our patient, uh, we started her on BiPAP. We did decide to give her a small fluid bolus. We gave her approximately 10 mLs per kilo of normal saline. But unfortunately, she didn't improve, and it became clear that she was going to require further intervention. So the fluid bolus is an interesting choice. Now, admittedly, a very safe, judicious fluid bolus, just 10 cc's a kilo. But you mentioned that you were concerned, like maybe there was an element of volume overload with that liver edge and some crackles in the lungs. 
Was the small bolus just because you were entertaining other non-cardiogenic diagnoses? Yeah, exactly. This one's tough. I think to give fluid or not to give fluid is one that keeps many people awake at night. It's always a recurring question if we're worried about cardiac conditions. In this case, I think it's important, as you allude to, that while we were, of course, thinking about cardiac conditions and are having a discussion about cardiac conditions, non-cardiac etiologies certainly can present in this manner most notably sepsis with the associated cardiac dysfunction very much could present in this way. And indeed, the sepsis was on our differential for this patient. After all, she was febrile and came in with this recent febrile illness. So we did give her broad spectrum antibiotics and giving her a little bit of fluid in this setting certainly was on our mind. The other thought was we were thinking very much worried that we were going to need to proceed with intubation. And so Increasing somebody's preload prior to intubation is generally a good idea. I think your point is fair in that she had some crackles on her lungs. She had some hepatomegaly, so she was probably not too intravascularly dry. So we opted to go with a small fluid bolus, but um, I think it's a reasonable discussion. Yeah, and I don't think that that bolus was an unsafe amount either. Like you said, it went, you went on the smaller side. But this is someone who's getting really technically complex to resuscitate now. Who do you call for help in a situation like this? Yeah, that's a great question. So fortunately, I work at a very large tertiary children's hospital, and we were able to call our cardiac intensive care unit colleagues very early in the process, and they were able to come down and lend their expertise and support as we continued forward in the care of this patient. So they were fortunately very readily available to us in this case. Yeah, recognizing that a lot of our listeners don't have access to peds cardiology or even you know a peds intensivist or even a pediatrician, it's so nice knowing that you have someone in your corner that has the expertise but also can do, frankly, lots of stuff that we can't. So yeah, in addition to having our cardiac intensive care unit colleagues on hand for their expertise and support in the event that things continue to decompensate, they're having them nearby was of paramount importance in this patient as in patients with fulminant myocarditis or any other cardiomyopathy or cardiogenic shock, things like ECMO become a real possibility if they continue to decompensate. So in this case, fortunately, we were able to intubate the patient without too many further complications, and she was ultimately sent to the cardiac intensive care unit on an epinephrine infusion, which I believe they transitioned to milrinone once she arrived in the cardiac ICU. But fortunately, in the end, she did very well. She did gradually recover her function. She was discharged to home. At the time of discharge, her cardiac function wasn't totally normal, but certainly her outlook was much improved. Yeah, that is an intense case, even with PEDS, ICU, and CCU available in-house. You mentioned, I think, that you also work in the community, right? How do you think this case would have been different if you'd been practicing out there and the same girl had rolled in? Yeah, that's a great question. So I do work at a, we have a couple of community hospitals within our larger hospital network. And I know is always a frequent topic of conversation for those that are primarily in the community and don't have the benefit of the cardiac ICU in-house. So I think, as you mentioned, these cases are always a great moment to reflect a little bit and think about how the management might change if one were in a community setting. 
ideally, if you can avoid intubation in these patients, that's always better given that it's such a high risk situation. So in an ideal world, I think what we would probably do would be to attempt to stabilize the patient on BiPAP or some other non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, which can provide some relief to the myocardium, decrease metabolic demand, improve the ventilation and oxygenation of the patient. And then in addition, perhaps if they're able to tolerate it from a hemodynamic standpoint, consider diuretic, perhaps some epinephrine or vasopressor support, and then transfer to a center with advanced cardiac capabilities, including ECMO, if that's possible. Yeah, I think the ins and outs of exactly which inotrope or inopressor you pick is probably a little too hairy for us to talk about today. But overall, I think that's a great overview of like that sick cardiac kid of the non-ductal dependent sort. Eric, I'm not going to lie to you. Sick children scare me. They scare me so much. And they scare lots of people, I think. So thanks for being on the show and taking us through that doozy of a case. Now, we did want to talk about one other project that you're involved in. It's called the Human Diagnosis Project, right? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, the Human Diagnosis Project's Global Morning Report is something I've been involved with for a little over a year. It is a daily web-based case series that's meant for physicians of all levels, trainees, medical students, reaches a whole lot of people in over 80 countries. Every day, Cases are published that range anywhere from adult medicine to pediatrics to primary care and are available on the Human Diagnosis website or on the app. So once you log on, you basically work through a case, right? Yeah. So just like in a real patient case, the the reader gets a little bit of information and then you start creating your own differential diagnosis that you can modify as you get more history, exam findings, tests, until you come up with your final diagnosis. At the end, you can put in your own diagnosis and as well as the plan. And then once you submit, you can see how your answers compare to what the author's diagnosis and plan was, as well as to everybody else that answered the case. That sounds pretty, pretty cool. So you should all go check out the site at humandx.org. Eric, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. It was great. And to everyone else, thanks for listening. For EM Cases, best case ever, my name's Rajiv Thavanathan. Follow me on Twitter at Rajiv Tava, that's R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. And until next time, keep your stick on the ice. <laughs>